We're going to be looking at the first four verses. Great verses, really. I mean, they're just uh, wonderful truths from God's Word. Paul writes, "There There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds upon the things of the flesh. But those who, are, who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would just take your word this morning. Uh, give us understanding. I pray, Lord, you would give help to the preacher as he brings uh, these passages to all of our hearts. And pray, Lord, that not only would you give us the understanding, but the resolve to live them out in our lives for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. What would you expect, or what would you guess to be the most popular display at the Smithsonian Institute or the Smithsonian in- Museums in Washington, D.C.? You know, as you think through that, and you make your own list, I know maybe you're thinking of the Wright Brothers plane you know, hanging from the ceiling, or maybe you're thinking of lunar rocks that came, uh, came from the moon, or the huge T-Rex that's on display there. But you might be surprised to find out that the answer is, is the Hope Diamond. Uh, you might not have even thought about that as being the most popular uh, item on display at the museum. A diamond of 45 and one-half carats, it's a huge thing. It's uh, one single diamond. It was found in the 1600s. It's estimated today. No one really knows because it hasn't been on the market for uh, since 58. But is at least 350 million dollars. It was owned by uh, Louis the 14th of France. It was owned by Henry the 4th of England. It was er- it was owned by several Turkish sultans. It has quite a history. It was donated to the Smithsonian Museum, and over 100 million observers have come by, standing in line to gaze at that Hope Diamond. It's kind of amazing in a way. And you'd think that maybe that's the only gem that's on display there. There's 350,000 gems that are on display at the Smithsonian Institute. And here's what's fascinating to me. People fly by the other 350,000 gems and minerals that are all over the museum. But when they come to the Hope Diamond, they stop. They get in line, and then they wait. And they don't just walk by. They sit and observe. And as they do, they marvel at this, this huge diamond. Now, picture that with me as we look at chapter 8 of the book of Romans. You know, give me a little latitude here, okay? But the entire Bible, think of the entire Bible being a beautiful display of the jewel of God's truth. I mean, it, it, it's full of redempt, redemption in the history of 
of God in, in the lives of His people, pointing us to Christ from the beginning to the end. And yet we kind of breeze by a lot of the, the books of the Bible pretty quickly. A lot of the chapters of the Bible, they're there, they're beautiful, they're wonderful. It's all truth, it's all good. But when you come to the book of Romans, it's kind of like the Hope Diamond. It's, uh, it's a glorious jewel that people, when they come to the book of Romans, and especially chapter 8, they get in line. And when they get to chapter 8, they peer, and they look, and they observe, and they're amazed at what they see in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. And then they begin to see the way it's cut and the way it glistens before their eyes. It has a blue tone like it did, even the Hope Diamond. And as it glistens before their eyes, it just stirs their heart because it's so glorious. It's so glorious a chapter. It's so glorious. And the reason why I mention all of this this morning is because I want you to know we just can't breeze by chapter 8. We just can't blow through it like, like we might all the other gems that are on display in perhaps other parts of God's Word. We need to get in line. We need to wait. And then we come to chapter 8, and we need to get together and collectively gaze upon this chapter. Spend some time. We need to slow down a little bit our pace through the book of Romans. It's too glorious, too much, too wonderful, too amazing to blow through 39 verses quickly. And I say that to you because that's why we're going to slow the pace down a little bit as we're going through the book of Romans. And we're going to be breaking it down. We're maybe looking at one verse here and one verse there and, and spending some time gazing as if you would on something like even the Hope Diamond. You're going to find in chapter 8 the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to find the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. You're going to find the security of the believer. It's all here in, in chapter 8. We're going to see in verse 1 the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Wonderful truth. We have to know that if we're a Christian. Number 2, verses 2 through 17, we're going to learn about sanctification and what it means to progressively be, grow into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to verses 18 to 39, we're going to look at the glory, the glorification that is ours in Christ and what lies in the future. I want to break this, uh, these four verses down this morning, one through four, under three headings. If you want to take notes, you can, but if not, just listen. Number one, we're going to see verse one, there's no condemnation. That's important. We're going to see a second point is the liberation that we have. And number three, the transformation that comes in verse 4. So we have the no condemnation, we have the liberation, and the third point is going to be the, the, the uh, transformation that God brings in the life of His people. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, we, we looked at uh, verse 1, right? And I, I said it's the shortest sermon in the world. It's only be two words. It's a two-word sermon. Do you remember what they are? No condemnation. That's it. Good. No condemnation. That's it. And, and if there was any way you could somehow brand those two words onto your frontal lobe somehow, so you would never, ever forget those two words, you would be so far along in the Christian life. Two words that bring hope, two words that bring encouragement, two words that bring assurance in the Christian life. 
he writes, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we, were, we worked through this a little bit during Sunday school, and I think it, it was helpful for us. It, uh, in fact, I think it was you that mentioned that, uh, the therefore at the beginning, right? You said, I, I wonder what the therefore is there for, because what does therefore do? It links us back to chapter 7. There is therefore now no condemnation. And, of course, we saw in in chapter 7, that's that inner battle of the Christian life we saw in the Apostle Paul as he so humbly reveals his heart to us and and things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and he's fighting back and forth, and he's just, oh, wretched man that I am. That's how the chapter comes to an end. Uh, i got this sin going on. I don't want to sin. And there's that inward battle. Who can deliver me? Who can free me from this body of sin, this body of death? And we saw there's victory there at the end. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There there is victory. And we're going to see in the midst of this battle, by the way, Christians, this is a battle that you were involved in last week. If you're a believer in Christ, you know what Paul's talking about in chapter 7. The things you wanted to do, you know you should have done, you didn't do. And the things you did do is what God said you shouldn't what? Do. And so we've got this inner battle and this war going on in us, and we wonder, are we even Christians? And when that happens, typically what happens is we end up condemning ourselves, or we end up listening to the voice of the enemy as he chirps in our ear, and he's there to condemn us. There you go again. You did it again. You call yourself a Christian. And then we have chapter 8. This is what makes chapter 8 so glorious. And why the therefore is therefore is because it just launches right out and says, by the way, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Even though this inner battle is going on inside your heart and you wonder, am I a Christian? He says there's no condemnation. And if you were here, you remember we saw that every word in in verse 1 is absolutely essential to come to a proper understanding. We also saw that therefore uh, takes us back not to the end of chapter 7, but really the therefore, if you, if you trace it back, takes us all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 1, where Paul wrote, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And because we've been justified, that is, we put our faith in Christ, Christ has done all the work on our behalf, and therefore He's imputed to us not only forgiveness and His righteousness, therefore there's no condemnation. Why? Because we've been justified. And so now, now was important because not in the future, this moment, here it is Sunday morning sitting in the, the chairs here, we're, we're thinking, right now I'm not condemned. It didn't matter what I did yesterday, I'm not condemned. Tomorrow, when things don't go spiritually the way you planned them, what happens? No condemnation. What about the day you die? No condemnation. This is permanent. This is lifetime. And this is for all who are in Christ Jesus. All who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's not one person that's excluded. If you're in Christ, not one one of His children are going to be excluded from no condemnation. And I don't care how much the enemy chirps in your ear. You can always chirp right back and say, listen, Romans 8.1. I'll tell you what Paul said. I'll tell you what the Bible says. I'll tell you what God says. No condemnation. 
Go away. Don't tempt me anymore. I'm no longer in Adam. I'm vitally joined with Christ. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That's why there's no condemnation. Now, tomorrow, or forevermore. Not only not guilty, by the way, we saw the word condemnation. is more than, it's like I'm not guilty. You're freed from the punishment of sin as well. So there's no condemnation. There's no death penalty. It'll ever be yours. And we see this isn't describing some or super special Christians. This is all believers in Christ. So we might, this by way of review, we might look at verse 1 as kind of the foundation for the rest of the chapter. And the rest of the chapter is going to be on, on the issue and the question of sanctification and glorification. But it's all based on being justified by faith. Being justified by faith, having no condemnation, and then we're going to see all that flows out of that relationship with Him. So that takes us to the second point, which is our liberation in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, if you're good observers, we're talking about observing in Sunday school today, and we use this as an example of how you go to a passage, you, you observe it, you ask questions about it, the who, what, and the where, when, and the why, and you look for words that are repeated over and over again, because sometimes that tells you those are important words in understanding God's Word. And uh, even though I took it down to verse 7, Mary, sorry about that, but uh, on the other hand, if you go in verses 2 through 7, look at this. Verse 2, look at your Bible. For the law of the Spirit, verse 3, for God has done, for those who live according to the flesh, 6, for the, uh, to set the mind on the flesh, and 7, for the mind that is on the flesh. I mean, for some reason, so this should tickle our, our understanding, for some reason, the word for is repeated over and over and over again, starting at verse 2 through verse 7, and it all comes out of verse 1. And the question is, do you see what Paul is doing, and do you see why he is, he is wording this the way he is? Uh, number one, I, I believe uh, Paul would have been a good lawyer. Uh, he writes some of, some of his chapters like legal briefs. And you've all seen legal documents, right, where whereas, and you have the whereas statement, Therefore, done, done. Therefore, therefore. Verse 1 is the whereas. We're justified. Whereas we are what? Not condemned. Then the therefore, the therefores and the therefores, certain things flow from that and are true of us. This word for might seem like a little insignificant word to you. And if you're interpreting God's Word, it might be one to be easy to skip over. And maybe you're hoping even that I would have skipped over it, but I've chosen not to. Uh, it's, it's a number of times that gives us a clue that there might be some value to this word for. And let me ask you this. How important is it? How important is this little word for in your Bible? Well, let me tell you how important it is. It's the difference between a true gospel and a false gospel. Do you realize that? That little four can change whether this whole meaning has to do with a false gospel or if your understanding of four would take you to understand the true gospel. 
One interpretation would lead to death. One interpretation would, would lead to life. That word for is that important. It will determine your spiritual destination. So what does for mean? Well, some of your Bibles might use the word because. I know in, in the, the Greek word gar, it, it, it's repeated. It's the same word, but I know it's translated differently in different translations. But one of it might be because. Now, that's true. But if it's because the way you would understand because, in other words, if you look at verses 2 to 5 are describing your practical sanctification, verses 2 to 5 describing how you walk in obedience to Christ now that you're saved, and, and you read it like this, in other words, I have therefore now no condemnation, and the reason why I don't have any condemnation is because I'm sanctified. Now, is that good theology? Are you, are you justified? Are you not guilty? Are, are, is there no condemnation because you were first sanctified? And the answer is absolutely no. That would lead you to understand that salvation, instead of being by grace through faith alone, would be a what? A work. And so here we are, we're, we're working through this, trying to understand, well then, Paul, what do you mean by this word? For, if it's not because. And I don't I think the word therefore is more helpful, the word for, therefore, the word since you're justified by faith, since there's no condemnation in your life, therefore, there's things that are going to happen in your life because God has saved you by grace through faith. You know, I said, well, Don, it seems like you're making a theological mountain out of a verbal molehill here, but I'm really not. What I want you to see is this, it's the difference between to be justified by fighting and working and striving or being justified by grace through faith alone. John Piper, commenting on this, writes, it's the difference between your heavenly court trial being behind you with an irrevocable verdict of not guilty and no condemnation and your trial being in front of you with a verdict yet you're waiting for and it's up in the air and you're depending on how you perform based on what the verdict's going to be. So it, it's really that important. In the area of worship, it's the difference between giving God the glory for what He's done and Christ the glory for His work on the cross versus, look what I've done, my righteousness, rather than Christ's righteousness imputed to me. So whereas there's no condemnation, therefore, follow this with me, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. And this is the liberation. Now, we have to ask ourselves what the word law means. Uh, some of your translations use capital L's. Some of your translations use lowercase L's. So my, my translation, it's all lowercase L through there. And you say, what's the difference of that? Well, there, first of all, the Greek language, there, there really are no upper and lower cases. You realize that it's all, it's all uppercase. So you can't get any... any indication from the original language there. But instead, uh, we have the difference between law, capital L, which is the moral law of God and the Ten Commandments. That would be the law, or the law being a principle or a power that exists within us. And we, we saw that, for example, if you were with us back in Romans chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, where Paul wrote there, so I find, to, I find it to be a law when I want it to do right, evil lies at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God. Okay, that's the Ten Commandments. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members in another law. Not the moral law, not the Ten Commandments, but I see a principle. I see a power that's within my very members that are waging war with my mind, making me captive to the law of sin. That's the principle of sin that dwells in my members. So if we want to paraphrase this, try and simplify it, uh, starting at verse 1, whereas we were justified, we no longer have any condemnation. Therefore, the inward spirit of life, the powerful inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit has set you free from the power of sin. He sets you free from the law or the power of sin, which always leads to death. And so one of the things that happens after you're saved and you're justified and you're trusting in Christ and your sins are forgiven and there's no condemnation, judicially, we realize there's something that happens inside of us in a real way, the Spirit of God comes to indwell us as believers. And that power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is more powerful than your flesh to sin, and therefore it has set you free, the indwelling Spirit and its power, His power, from the law of sin, that is the power of sin and the power of death in your life. Calvin said this, the power of the living Spirit delivered me from the dominion of the law of sin and death in my members. So let's put it more simply even yet. If you're a believer in Christ, you're under a new power if you're saved. You've got a new power living within you. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit whose, whose power is greater than the power you had before you were a Christian to sin. And here Paul calls it the law of sin and death because it leads to death. So I pray as we go through this passage, you will see and hear and feel this gospel confirming truth from from the Apostle Paul. You'll see just grace abounding all over this passage, the exclusion of any works on our part, and that you'll be able to feel and know and feel you are free. Listen carefully. You are free from the power of sin in your life. You've got to start thinking of yourself that way. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to live a perfect life. It doesn't mean you're not going to have the battle that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. But you have within you the indwelling Spirit of God Himself, the principle of power of Almighty God within you that gives you victory over sin. Now, that war is still going on. You know, you're going to lose some, some, war, some battles and win the war. But to perceive this yourself, that you know that you have that power, is helpful and is encouraging. It reminds us that we stop working. We see striving for salvation. It's, it's, it's impossible because it's, uh, we grow in grace by working by the work of God through the Holy Spirit in our life. And the good news, all of this is for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you see that in verse 2, all who have the spirit of life are in Christ. And so if you're a Christian, you believe in Christ, you're not condemned. You're in Christ, right? You're in Christ. That's why you're not condemned. You, he died, you died, you're in Christ. He was buried, you were buried, you're in Christ. He rose again, you, rose, you rise again, you will rise again, you're in Christ. Romans 8, 9. So hopefully you see how Paul, what, what he's, I want you to hope that you can see here is how Paul is inseparably linking 
Watch this now. Justification by faith, verse 1, with the sanctification of the Holy Spirit that's in your life, verse 2. You've been liberated, you've been freed, and therefore those two cannot ever be separated. You're justified, you will be what? You are sanctified. Now, is this practical? Yes. Because one of the things this truth does, it confronts the uh, common uh, false teaching that's today, everywhere, and that is the false teaching of uh, what sometimes people refer to as easy believism. What's easy believism? Well, you believe in Jesus and you go to heaven. And you can live however you want to live in, in between. That's never taught in the Word of God. You're justified, you will what? You are sanctified. The two go together. So it's, it's not an uncommon teaching today to hear people teach, preach on the issue of justification. And what you'll hear them do is separate it from sanctification. So you can believe in Jesus, is how it's usually, you'll hear it. You can believe in Jesus as your Savior, right? And your sins are forgiven. But you don't have to trust in Jesus as your Lord, or as your King. Uh, now, later on in your life, as you, you, know, you get, have a crisis or something happens, you might get to the point where then you finally, well, now I'm going to trust in Jesus as Lord, and I'm going to live an obedient life. Well, that's separating, see, justification from sanctification. You can't separate the two. What Paul is doing in verses 1 and 2 is he's inseparably linking the two together. If you are justified, you are being sanctified. You have the Holy Spirit within you, and the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit gives you a desire and the power to be victorious over sin, period. So that's what Paul's doing here in these two verses. Paul here is clear, the believer in Christ, not condemned. All who are not condemned have been set free, liberated from the power of sin and death and have life everlasting. And so what God has done for you, Christian, is this. Be, be, be praising because His Spirit's in you. The power of God is in you as a believer. And He's doing a work in you and He's sanctifying you. And He's given you the power and the desire and the ability to do what? To be victorious over sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer helpless to sin. You're free. And you're free to live a life that's pleasing to Almighty God. And how did this happen? Well, verse 3 tells us, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That's how he did it right there. We're going to meditate on this during the Lord's Supper in just a minute. But the, verse 3 is all that God has done to accomplish justification and sanctification. It begins with the word what? For. Again, an explanation. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, uh, for, for what the law be, could not do, the Ten Commandments was never designed to save you. Do you realize that? God never gave the Ten Commandments so you live a holy life and be sanctified. It was never intended to sanctify you. And we've been through this, but then why did God give us the law then? Does it have any purpose? And, and the moral law was given to show us that we, we need a Savior. We can't keep the law. 
and therefore appoints us to Christ as a schoolmaster. And then what we have here is then who does justify us, who does save us, if the law doesn't do it? God does it. God does it. That's the good news. By sending His own Son, it says here, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for, this is why He came, for sin, to die for sin, He he condemns sin in the flesh. And so we see here the sending of His Son. God the Father sent His Son into this world. He came in this world in the likeness of sinful flesh, Himself not being what? Sinful. He was never sinful Himself. He was without sin. He entered this world for the purpose of dealing with sin. That's the Christmas story. That's incarnation. And in the likeness of man, but yet Himself without sin. And then He... Was, his flesh was condemned for us because He had no sin. And we see on the cross our Lord there as the spikes are jammed into His, his hands and His spikes, spikes are jammed into His feet and as a spear is rammed up into, into, under His ribcage and, and He's bleeding and He's dying and the wrath of the Almighty Father is being poured out on the Son who knew no sin. He was being condemned on our behalf. So verse 1, we what? Face no condemnation. That's the work of Christ. And so His sacrificial death liberated us from the power of sin because it brought to us the Holy Spirit. So, since once condemned us, God once condemned us, we were once guilty, now there is no condemnation for what Christ has done on our behalf. He was condemned so that we might not be condemned. But that's not all. I want to quickly look at the last point in verse 4. That is, he, he did that for our transformation. Not only liberation from sin, but for our transformation, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be f- fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know, we, we said we, one of the things we look for is cause and effect when we're interpreting the Bible. Uh, we talked about how Paul liked to use the Hina, which is a, a purpose clause. And so what we have here is that purpose clause here, in order that. In other words, Christ died on the cross in order that. There's a purpose behind it. And here it is, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And by the way, this is huge. This is really big because the law cannot save you. The law cannot sanctify you, but the law still, listen carefully, has a place in your life. You're not free from the law even though you are a believer in Christ. Now, it, 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 has, it can't save you, but it can be your rule for life, and that's the purpose of the law in your life, to be your rule for life. I tried to write down what that meant, and then I decided, you know, I think my, our confession does a pretty good job of explaining this. Why don't you just read the confession instead of trying to do it yourself? And that's what I did. So I I looked at our confession, and under the law of God, here's what it says exactly on on this verse. This is the London 1689. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works. Okay, so that means true believers are not saved by the, the law, keeping it. To therefore be justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them, 
as well as to others in that as a rule of life. So God didn't give us the Ten Commandments for the commandments to be a way of saving you or sanctifying you, but to give you a rule for your life as a believer, informing them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, their hearts, and their lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of His obedience. That's a real pregnant <laughs> clause there, but that's, that, that's the heart of what Paul is saying. The law is not here to save you. You can't keep it and be saved and become a Christian. You, can't, you, don't, you don't earn your sanctification by obeying the law. But you're a Christian. The law now has a special place in your life, and that is to be a rule for your life, a guidepost for your life. How do I live my life as a believer? What's the pathway of righteousness? And God said, well, it's the moral law. And so therefore, now you're a Christian, you delight in the law. Before you hated the law, but now you delight in it. It's your guide. And you go to it and periodically open up to Exodus chapter 20. You read some of the Ten Commandments and you say, ah, I'm not to have any idols in my life. What does that mean now that I'm a believer? I don't have a totem pole in my backyard. What does that mean? And you, and you think, well, is there anything in my life that's replaced Christ? And you begin to think of it with the power of the Holy Spirit to give enlighten the Word. Is there anything I bow to that's more important than Jesus? Worshiping Him? Serving Him? Do I have any other gods in my life? I come to the fourth commandment, six days thou shalt work. Seventh day is a day of rest. What does that mean? How do I apply that in the 21st century? What, what changes do I need to make in my life, and my priority, so that I can come in conformity because now I have a rule of life and I delight to do the law of God? And how? That who, for those who walk according to the flesh, walk is the outward expression of your life. It's how you talk, how you walk, how you conduct yourself. Before it was... Uh, you walked according to the flesh. Now that you're a Christian, you walk not according to the flesh. But now you walk differently because you're a believer and you're being sanctified. You walk as what? According to the Spirit. Enabling you, strengthening you, empowering you, desiring. And so our walk becomes the, the, the transformation that takes place because of the work of God. You know, I, I like, uh, really this is a good ex description theologically of Philippians 2.12 where work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, you're a Christian, work out your salvation. For it's God, there's the Holy Spirit, who is what? He's in you. And he is, He's working His will and He's working His purpose out in your life. He's changed your desires. He's empowering you to do what He has purpose for you to do. Let me just close this morning. Um, let me see if I can simplify even more what Paul's saying by way of personal, by way of personal uh, application. Let me just ask you a series of questions. Number one, who is the person Paul is referring to in verse one? 
Well, we say we answer that question. That's the person who is justified, who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That is the person who is no longer what? Condemned. Here's my question. Is that you? Are you do you find yourself in verse 1? In other words, you're the one, I, I believe in Christ. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And I believe, therefore, I am no longer condemned for any sin in my life. Is that you? Do you hop on board at verse 1? If you do, then you go down to verse 2. And you ask yourself, does verse 2 then apply to me? Because remember, we've got all these therefores, therefore, therefore, therefore. Uh, are you the person in verse 2 who's been liberated from the power of sin and the power of death because you're in Christ? That might be a little harder question for you to answer because that question is really asking you, have you reached the point where you're free from the power of sin in your life and it's evidenced by the way you're, you're living? Do you have a desire for holiness? Do you have a desire to be like the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you into the battle that we saw back in Romans chapter 7? Are you that person? Now, if you say, well, I am the person in verse 1, but I don't know if I'm the person in verse 2, then I'm going to ask you a third question. Are you the, the person in, in verse 3? For whom the Father sent the Son. Are you one of them? The one for whom Christ was condemned, that you might not be condemned. And finally, are you the person in verse 4? Now, the verse 4 is the person who's not, they looked at their lives and they find themselves not walking according to, to the flesh or the world, but they're walking according to the Spirit. You say, well, where do your feet take you? Where do your hands take you? What do you think about? What do you talk about? What's your priorities in life? Can you honestly say before God that, that, that your path, your walk, your, your, your way forward in your life is yielded to the Spirit of God in the life of obedience? So, well, no, I'm not there. I might be at one and two, but I don't know if I'm about down to four. And here's my instruction to you if you say no to any one of them after verse 1. Go back to verse 1. Go to the starting point. Because you see, if you are justified, you will be sanctified. If you are trusting in Christ as your Savior and Lord, and then you will be freed from the power of sin. You will be walking in a way according to the Spirit. And there will be a change that's taking place that's noticeable in your life. You won't be living the way you lived before you said you had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life is different. A transformation has taken place. And so if you you say, well, I'm hanging on to verse 1, but I don't have any of the other verses, go back to verse 1. And repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that He truly might save you. And ask Him to do that work of grace that will change you from the inside out. Oh, what a, what a victory that would be in your life. And for those of us who are in Christ, by the grace of God, we can say yes to these various verses, 1 through 4. We can
We focus on verse 3, and we're going to focus on it in just a minute. And we have much to praise and thank our Lord for, because all of this is only possible in your lives, not because of anything we have done, but because Christ has done it, what? All. He was condemned so that we would not be condemned. Father, we close and thank you again for speaking to us, Lord, uh, hopefully revealing our hearts before you. Oh, Lord, we, we, as believers, if, you, if there's any change that's taken place at all, it's because of your grace. We praise you for that grace. Thank you for opening our blind eyes to see, our deaf ears to hear. We thank you for taking our stubborn, proud, rebellious hearts that were rejecting you and changing those hearts, Lord, so that we could believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we trust him and we see that we're no longer condemned, it's because he was condemned for us. And now, Lord, we pray that you would help us and strengthen us and increase our resolve, Lord, to uh, be men and women of God who would then therefore walk according to your spirit in a pathway that brings glory to you in every area. In Jesus' name, amen.